The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. mentioned, we're going to talk about this theme of uh, work and vocation. And we're beginning 2019, and we're doing this, this theme um, and this series through Ecclesiastes, and it's this idea of living intentionally in an aimless world. Um, and we have two weeks left in the series, and, and this morning is about work and intentionality. And I have a little person. I'd like to introduce you to Levi. This is cute. Who's going to come get Levi? Anna Marie, come get Levi. Or actually, Abigail, why don't you come? So I'm actually going to mention him in my sermon today um, about how he's a little worker at home. Um, come on, here you go. But you got to stay, stay put with your, your family, bud. There you go. So he's a, he's a preacher in training. Uh, we're getting him ready. Um, so it occurred to me, as I thought about work and how much time we spend in our work, that if you work 40 hours a week-ish, and you work about 50 weeks this year, that's going to mean you're going to spend about 2,000 hours of your life at work. And that's about 35% of your waking hours. You're awake, about 35% of that will probably be working. So the question we have is, what difference does it make being a follower of Jesus with our work, right? That's important. That's a foundational question for us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, because of how much we're going to be working, right? It's a huge question we need to answer. But it's also, if you're, if you're not quite sure where you stand with Jesus, and you're just kind of wondering, hey, does this, like, being a Christian thing, is this, is this something I'd want to do? You want to know, right? How... How is being a follower of Jesus going to change the way you work, the way you think about your, your work and vocation? Is it going to disrupt it? Is it going to have to change it? Is it going to energize it? What's it going to do? It's a very important question. Now, over the years, I've heard lots of different answers in Christian circles about how our faith relates to work. And it's usually things like this, like, well, it means you share your faith with your coworkers, but only on lunch breaks, right? Because otherwise you're stealing in Jesus' name, and that's no good, right? Things like that. Or you follow all the rules, and you make sure you do everything above board. That's, that's important, right? Or maybe you just, to be like a Christian, right, you have to go into the ministry. You have to uh, enter some kind of Christian line of work. You become a pastor, or you produce things that are distinctly religious. Or another one is maybe you, you put a, a fish on your business card and you advertise in Christian News Northwest, right? And, and you're in kind of to, to, to doing good business is that you, you have the, the Christian customer base that you, uh, you serve. Yeah, or maybe it just means you work really hard, right? The good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic, right? Just, just work really hard. That's the Christian thing to do. 
Um, or maybe you make as much money as possible and then you just give it all away, right? To charity or to Christian causes. Um, or finally, my, my favorite one is it means that the other Christians, right, that you do business with expect that you're going to give them the special family hookup deal, right? Because, of course, you're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Is that what it means to be a Christian in your work? I don't necessarily disagree with these, maybe, maybe except for the last one, right? Let's, let, let's pay our Christian plumber what he deserves. Um, but I want to challenge us to think deeper, right? None of these are bad things, but they're all just at the surface level, aren't they? Right? They're just talking about behavior. You don't have to be transformed radically by the message of Jesus to put a fish on your business card or to work hard or to not cheat. Anyone can do that. And... Right? And these behaviors aren't necessarily informed by a robust theology of work that we find in the Bible. They're just surfacey. They're not bad or wrong. They're just surfacey. So let's dig a little deeper, and, and the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us do that. Okay? Develop a biblical theology of work. So we're going to look at three things. And you can, three points we'll put up on the, on the screen. What makes work frustrating? Ecclesiastes will help us a lot with that. What truths can make our work fulfilling, and how can we know that our work will last forever? Okay? What makes work frustrating? What truths can make our work fulfilling, and how can we know that our work will last forever? Okay, let's start. Um, Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, or in your apps, if that's what you have. And we're going to, our main text is going to be starting in verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9. It's kind of right there near the middle of your Bible after Psalms and Proverbs. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So what do we gain from our toil? It says here that God has put eternity in our hearts, right? And there's this desire for our work to last. We long to leave a legacy. But the problem is, and what Ecclesiastes shows us is, Nothing lasts. This is what Solomon wrestled through. He talks about how death will come and be this great equalizer, right? All people will die, whether you're rich or poor or wise or foolish. We're going to die, and we have no control of what comes after us. We can't take any of those riches we gained with us, and, we, and honestly, we don't know, right, what will happen to our legacy, Will it continue, or will some fool take over and, and just kind of waste it? Uh, you can, listen to these words. This is Ecclesiastes 2, uh, 18 and 19. You can just uh, probably look a, a chapter early, and you'll see this. As he describes this, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise 
or a fool. Yet he will be master for, of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Can you relate to this experience or this fear of this desire for something that will last and then wondering, is my work pointless? Leo Tolstoy, right, one of the greatest novelists of all time, wrestled through this, and he talks about this in his memoir. We'll, uh, pull up the quote. He says, he says, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And here's a man without God in just the, the privacy of his own journal, reflecting on what am I living for? Right? Is there a meaning to it? Pastor Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, in his great book, uh, it's called Every Good Endeavor. He talks about this grasping for identity and purpose in our work, right? And, and he calls it the work under our work. And he says that many people are not merely doing the work that draws the salary, they're also doing the work to chase away their sense of insignificance. This work beneath the work of, of trying to prove to the world that we are not insignificant. Now, what happens, right? What happens if you're trying to find your point in life from your work? You try to find that lasting meaning there. You know what's going to happen? You'll probably end up hurting yourself or others. When our identity is found in our work, right, we have to cut ethical corners. We got to climb and claw past other people that get in our way so that we can, right, prove to ourselves and others that we are successful. Or if we fail our work, if the stock market crashes, if we get fired, we lose our job, we're not up to snuff, then that identity that we built comes crumbling down. Right? If identity is in our work, it will be pointless. It will be frustrating. The second way that work is frustrating is work is hard. Amen? Work is hard. Right? Look at, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 10, he just says this. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is that business? He, he says it already. If, uh, 1, 13. <laughs> okay. I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is, uh, sorry, that's two. 1, 13. He, he tells us what this business is. He says, um, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's an unhappy business. I look at it, it's hard work, right? This idea of under the sun, I think it speaks to life without God, but it's also this picture, right? Any of you guys do like labor work in the summer under the sun? Like you miss it all year, and then you're, you're, you're working your 10-hour day in the sun, and it's like, this is, this is hard. This is toil. This is the, the pain of work. And Genesis describes this, right? It describes that, that there's this good creation, but there's this curse. There's thorns, 
There's pain in childbirth. There's, there's just challenge in our work, right? Even the, um, this chapter 3, right, it begins with that famous passage, right, about how every, for everything there is a season, right? It's a season for everything under the sun. Turn, 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 right? It's a season for everything, like the, like the song says. Um, and you know that's poet, poetic and pretty and stuff? But you know what it also speaks to? is the frustration of work, that you got to keep doing things again and again. I just cleaned this house. I just cleaned this bathroom. i got to do it again. Turn, 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 again and again. I'm repeating my work. This is a great illustration. So Ecclesiastes 3.5 says, there is a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together again. Throw up the picture. You know what this is? I don't know if you can tell. Look really closely at that bottom. There's a little three there. That's a swimming pool. Okay? So I have some friends that have a retreat center at the base of Mount Hood. And it's as as large a state, and it used to be owned by Fred Meyer of Fred Meyer Stores. And he was like his mountain getaway. And so this is an outdoor swimming pool. And over on the right, you see that chimney thing? That's the that's the wood-burning stove that would heat the pool. It's quite this, this amazing thing. They would, you'd pump the water through this wood-burning stove, and you'd have a nice, warm swimming pool. Now it's full of gravel, right? It's gravel. Someone spent a lot of hard work digging a big hole in the ground to make a swimming pool. And the next person that came said, this is a safety li- liability. This is too much money to take care of. Let's fill it with gravel. Right? There is a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones again. Right? There it is. Right? You dig out the stones. Oh, next person comes. He fills them back in because he didn't like where you put the hole. That's the frustration in life. That's our work. It doesn't last. Right? Just buy an old house in Portland. You understand that the work doesn't stop. Right? And it's, it's this experience, right? You're, you're frustrated by it, and you're just like, God, why did you make this so hard? Right? Everything fights against me. Nothing I do stays that way. Right? Nothing does what I tell it to do. Right? And God just looks back and smiles, and he's like, now you know how I feel. <laughs> right? Like, that's a part of even God's prophetic word to us in the curse. Right? We know how he feels. Everything fights against us, and we fight against our Creator. Now, some of us might be tempted to find our identity in our work, right? And you build too much identity in that, and it falls down, or it succeeds because you hurt other people. Other of us look at work and just say, this is hard stuff. Forget that, right? Let's just, let's just like do the whole like Portland retire in our 20s thing. And, right, it's... So you just run from work, and you, and you say, this is too hard. I'm going to give up this. But what you end up doing is you lose the dignity and joy that comes from work. When you do a job well, when you create something beautiful, and you make a difference in the world or provide for people you love, it gives dignity, right? Right? It's a part of how we flourish as human beings. We were created for work. And the difficulty of work is actually good for us, isn't it? Right? It builds our character. It strengthens our bodies. Right? It gets us out of ourselves. 
to run a good business, to do a job well, you can't be stuck on yourself. You've got to be asking, what will bring value to other people? Right? Work is good for us. It trains us to think about others. So work is frustrating, right? Because it can feel pointless and it can be just plain hard. And yet we know it's good. And we're going to see that in Ecclesiastes. And he's going to, it's going to shift. And you see through Ecclesiastes, it's like dreary Portland, rainy winter. Rain, 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 rain. And then like a little glimmer of sun comes through. You're like, oh, get out in the sun, right? And you see it and you're all excited. Like the Portlandia episode, you're like, sun is coming. Okay, the glimmers of light in Ecclesiastes come through in things like, and we'll see this in this passage, a job well done and a good meal eaten with family and friends that we love. And you see this little glimmer of hope and life and joy in a difficult world. So, so look at that. So in, in verse 12, we're going to see the second point, the truth that makes work fulfilling. We know it's frustrating, but what makes it fulfilling? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in, his, in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We see here that God's presence makes all the difference. Work and the enjoyment of the fruit of our labor is a gift from God. Right? And in this passage, Solomon has stopped trying to pursue pleasure and meaning. Right? And he's just kind of released it and said, Okay, I, got, I can receive meaning and life and joy from you as a gift. In the New Testament, we see the same idea in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul just says to Timothy, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. God gives good gifts. It's good. Receive them with thanksgiving. And so, for the second point, the key for us is we experience fulfillment when we recognize God's design in the world and just live according to that design. We need to recognize God's design in the world. Both the unique design of us as individuals, and this gets to the idea of calling and vocation, as well as just how God has designed work to work in the world, how he has made it. And so three truths that make work fulfilling about God's design. The first one is, both work and rest are the gifts of God. Look at verse 13. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And we see in Genesis that we are created to work and we're created to rest. And both of these things God does and that both these things are given to us freely. Right? So God, so work is a gift. If you read kind of ancient philosophers and you see the context of, of the literature of the day around when Genesis was written, you realize that this was a radical idea. Most ancient philosophies said that work was bad and was evil. Or they would, they would say there's honorable work, right, the thinking work, and then there was dishonorable work, like working with your hands, working in the dirt. Genesis is totally radical, isn't it? 
Who works in the dirt in the book of Genesis, in the creation story? God does. Do you realize what that says for, for just the person that works with their body, works with their hands? It says God values your work, right? We're made in the image of God, and it's a good gift. The, he gave us this, this work of cultivating the garden. It's the idea that, that there is creation, right? You realize even before sin, there was work, right? And even before sin, there was a cultivated garden, and then there was wilderness. And God called our first parents, go out into the wilderness and make it a garden. Cultivate it. Take things out of order, put them into order. Take chaos and make beauty, right? That's, that's the call of work. That's the, that's, that's the common grace that God has given to all of us, right? And creation is spiritual and physical. Our work is spiritual and physical, right? We engage in the work of creation and redemption and recreation, right? I think for too long in the church, especially in some of the more uh, uh, kind of fundamentalist, modernist, early 20th century thinking, there was this idea that God saves souls out of the world. You know, I don't think that's entirely true, or it's at least not the whole truth. More than saying that God saves us out of the world, he saves us for the world, right? You're not raptured. You're still here. You got a purpose. He saved us for the world. And we get to be a part of that work of recreation, right? Taking meaning, bringing meaning out of meaninglessness and order out of chaos. Now for me, the clearest way I see this, this this value, this gift of work in my family, in my life is in in my family. And you you saw little Levi, you, you met him. Now, our kids are convinced that the best thing they can do in the world is play all day long, right? Just, and that's good. I think it's healthy for kids. Let them play, right? It's a good thing. But you know what? When we expect them to be productive contributors like to the household, they come alive. There's something good and beautiful that happens when we expect work and learning and, and, and we challenge our kids. And so even with the young ones, right? So just... so. Our, our two-year-old, right, he still gets his diaper changed, right? He doesn't do it himself. But when, when the eight- or ten-year-old is changing the two-year-old's diaper, after it's done, right, you wrap it up, and you give it to the two-year-old and say, okay, go throw it away, right? And he, he's got the biggest smile on his face. I'm making a difference. I'm making a contribution, right? He takes his little diaper, opens up the trash, puts it in. We're like, no, that's the recycling. Other trash, right? But, but he's just trying, right? He loves it. He's got a big smile on his face. So in our house, you make a mess, you clean it up, right? And we, we start early, uh, with the diapers even. Uh, <laughs> so, right, work is a gift. We've got to know that about God's world. The second one is rest is a gift. And they need to be received together. And you, if you take one, you don't take the other, we can't flourish, we won't be satisfied and fulfilled in our work or in our rest and our leisure. Right? You ever heard of death by retirement? Right? You just, if you just stop working, what's there to live for? Some people find so much identity in their work that they simply cannot rest. Right? They work to provide for their family or they gain lots of nice things 
and they never actually have time to enjoy that family they're providing for or the nice things that they bought. It's just kind of, they sit there, right? But when you receive your work as a gift from God, you, were also, you also receive your rest as a gift, right? And then rest becomes not just a meaningless escape from our work, but rather refreshment to go back into our work. Listen to how uh, the novelist, uh, Christian novelist and thinker Dorothy Sayers expresses it. She says this. She says, we should no longer think of work as something that we hasten to get through in order to enjoy our leisure. We should look on our leisure as the period of changed rhythm that refreshed us for the delightful purpose of getting on with our work. Not that quote, but that's okay. I, I confused our slide guy. We'll get to that quote. You, you see that, 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 that last line, right? That um, not look on our leisure as a period of, we look on our leisure as, a, as the period of change rhythm that refreshed us for the, perp, the delightful purpose of getting back to our work. Rest is given to enjoy the giver and enjoy the fruit of our work. And we cannot find fulfillment without both work and rest. So that's the first one. We receive right, this gift uh, of God, of work and rest. Then we got to see that, that God gives work right, for the good of humanity. Work is not just about money. And it's definitely not about status or identity. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And this is foundational. It always has been to the, the, the Christian view of vocation and work, right? God works for our good and makes us in his image so that we can do work that benefits people. It's not about money. It's not about status. In fact, if you focus on the money, you're going to end up being a mercenary in your work, right? You're a doctor, and you're the people what, that you're helping that you're, you're serving, they're just a means to your paycheck, right? Like, the, then people are used. Or your customer, oh yeah, we're just gonna, we just gotta somehow make this so that we can provide this product to them and make a profit. Like, well, if you care about your customer and delighting them, you'll actually make the best product, right? And so, work exists not for ourselves, but to benefit the rest of mankind. It provides value to people. And here's just the, the, it's a really simple concept. Foundational principle to this Christian view of work is that competent work in the service of others is a form of love. And this, and to this love, all Christians are called, whatever your job is. Right? Just do competent work in the service of others. That's Christian love. Right? If you're if you're paving our streets, I am thankful. I don't like the potholes. I feel loved if you get rid of the potholes or if you help clean my house or whatever it is, right? Competent work is an act of love for people. And the, the, the third principle, and, and by the way, that's how you find fulfillment, right? When it's not about you or your money. It's about serving others. And finally, we find fulfillment in our work because we know that God gives us work that fits our design. Ecclesiastes 3.13, right? The idea of taking pleasure in all your toil. You want to take pleasure in your toil, then you understand the Christian doctrine of vocation. 
It's a Latin word, calling. Vocation is calling, right? There's a certain work that fits who you are. It fits how you're gifted. It fits what you're passionate about. And when you, you put these two ideas together, the previous one, that work is for the good of others and for the good of humanity, and then that there's a work and a vocation designed for you, or better yet, you were designed for that kind of work, right? And you, you put it together, and you find what satisfies and what makes a difference in the world. Now, it's not, I'm not saying there's like a dream job for everyone, and you just got to find it. If you don't find that, well, you're going to be unhappy. I think there's a spectrum of how we're gifted, how we're wired, what excites us, what interests us. And, and, and we should shoot for that and be aiming for finding that spectrum of, of work that, that fulfills us, that, that we enjoy, right? So find that thing that gets a fire in your belly and which makes a difference in the world. That's how you pursue that. Now, okay, so what if you're not in that spectrum? You might say, well, you know, I want to be way over here. I'm, 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 a, I'm a people person. I want to help people, and, and I'm, I'm here. I'm, yeah, maybe it's I'm digging, or I'm building, or I'm doing something different, right? So one, one application is, okay, then, then maybe you got to have a plan, right, to, to move into a different vocation, a different, different job. But there's another thing I think that we, we too easily miss, and that is we can use our gifts and our, our strengths, and we can meet the needs of others in whatever work we're in, right? And as I try to think through an illustration of this, I think nothing comes to mind is clearer to me than this wonderful old man at Multnomah named Roger, okay? If you've been to Multnomah, you know Roger, right? And when I was a student there, he worked in the cafeteria, okay? Now, I don't think most cafeteria jobs put on the, like, requirements, job description, contagious joy and gift of encouragement, right? No, you, no, you got to be able to work hard and wipe tables and maybe cook and do the dishes, right? But what was his gift? What, what was he wired for, right? He was just this, this old guy with a huge smile that knew all the students and talked to you and befriended you and cared about you. And you're like, I don't know why you're so happy. It's rainy outside, but you make me happy too. That's what Roger does at Multnomah. So they named a coffee shop after him, right? You, you might, right? You might be a Roger, but your job is waiting tables. You know what? You can still encourage people in the job you're in, right? Now, that brings us to the final point, right? So our work is fulfilled when we find that design, Right? We see God's design for work and God's design for us for benefiting the world. But how do we know that our work will last forever? What ultimately gives it meaning? And we see in Ecclesiastes 3.11, right, that he says that God has put eternity in our hearts, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. There's this sense in which each of us, there's a desire for the eternal. There's this desire to leave a lasting legacy, and yet we grasp for it, and we can't find it. We can't find it, even in our work, in this good, beautiful gift that we have, right? It's not enough just to know God's design for your life and in the world. 
There's something inside each of us that resonates with, with uh, Leo Tolstoy, right, what we said, that, that we long to know that our work will remain, that something will last even after we die. And we'll uh, look at verse 314, and we see a glimpse of this answer to this final question. How do we know our work will last forever? Solomon says this. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Right? This passage gives us the reality that only God's work lasts forever. If we're seeking our own kingdom, if we're building our own name for ourselves, it's really bad news. Oh, yeah, you're not going to last. Only God's work will last. The message of Ecclesiastes is that your life is a vapor. It will come and go. You will die and be forgotten. Your work will be undone by others, and your money will probably be spent by people you don't know. I think of the Robin Williams speech from um, Dead Poets Society, right? About the carpe diem. These, uh, these young men, they're like ready to, to get at life and they're excited and they're proud and he shows them these pictures of these, these other young men from a generation past. And he says, you see these young men? You know what they're doing now? They're daffodil fertilizer, he says to them. This great scene. That sounds kind of morbid. Sometimes we've got to be honest, right? So where do we find hope that our work will last forever? We see in this passage here that only God's work will last forever. And so for us, the only way that we can do work that will remain is if God's work somehow becomes our work. The only way our work's going to last forever is if somehow God's work becomes our work. And it's just one answer to how we do that. We learn to rest in his work as our own. We learn to rest in his work as our own. And this is where we'll end. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gives this invitation. Jesus sees that we are weary and burdened, that we're frustrated in this life. And the answer he gives is, is a little surprising. Rather, he doesn't say, come to me, all oh, you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I will, I will take your burden from you. That's not what he says. He says, he says, I will give you my yoke. My burden is easy. My burden is light. It will give you rest. He offers his yoke, his burden to us. He invites us to come under his care and his teaching. That's, that's a picture of what that yoke is. Come, receive Christ's teachings. Re receive his care and his love. He is the only boss that will not work you into the ground. He will not require of us what we cannot give because his work is already complete. He has done it and we have nothing to add to it. To be a Christian means to rest 
in the finished work of Christ rather than resting in our own work. God rested in his creation only after his work was complete. And we can find that ultimate rest only in the finished work of Christ. Earlier I quoted from Tim Keller, right, where he says that many people are trapped, not just doing their work, right, their, their job, but they're trapped in trying to do a work beneath their work, trying to prove to the world that they are significant, that they're not a failure. But in Christ, there is a rest under our work. We know that Jesus has done the impossible job of bearing our weight, the weight of our sin and our shame. And then he frees us. That frees us to work with all our might, right? Because we're delighting our Heavenly Father. We can work just to delight him for his pleasure. And we are free to put our work down and rest and enjoy the people around us, enjoy God's gifts because we're no longer bearing the, the weight of the world, right? We're not bearing all that pressure to try to perform and be good enough. We can rest. We can work hard and then rest well because there's a rest beneath our work and that is the finished work of Christ. And there's a beautiful illustration of this and, and you've, you've probably seen the movie, uh, Chariots of Fire, right? It's a true story of the two British runners, 1924 Olympics, and... And the movie brings out their motivations for why they're racing, why they're running. And Eric Little, right, who had, had felt called to be a missionary in China, but was in the Olympics running. Uh, and this other uh, gentleman, uh, Harold Abrams. Uh, and Eric Little says this. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose. And I think the movie cuts this out, but the quote is, to be a missionary in China. God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? That's his vocation. He works. He feels God's pleasure. It's his, he delights. Harold Abrams says, when I race, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Isn't that sad? You can be an Olympic runner at the top of your game, and it's about 10 lonely seconds to justify your existence. When we are resting in Christ, we can know that our work will remain because the work that we do will be an expression of the work that God has already done in us. Our work will remain because it will be an expression and an outflow of that finished work of Christ that he's done in us. And I want to end on a Dor Dorothy Sayers quote that sums us up of the significance of work for a Christ follower. And she just says this. She says, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, right? Get a, make a living, make money, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to offer ourselves to you. We thank you for work. Uh, some of, sometimes it's mundane. Sometimes it's frustrating and tiring. Sometimes it's exciting and new. Uh, sometimes we wonder what it is or, or should be. Uh, 
but you have made us in your image and you have made us to work and made us to rest. And, and we know that in you alone we find fulfillment and rest. And, and God, we are eager to go out this week and make a difference in this world to serve people uh, as you have served people, to, uh, to love through competent work that makes a different, difference in people's lives, whether in small or big ways. Thank you for the gospel that frees us, that gives us fulfillment and, uh, and gives us hope of, of a kingdom forever uh, with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.